One of the ways to have something to say is to know what other people have said and then think about how you can rearrange that and, and apply that to your own life and to your own, your own circumstances. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Newstock. Last week, we ran out of time and we launched part one of the series. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can find the link to part one in our show notes. Your chapter of stock, this one resonated with me the most. In fact, I, I stopped and I re-listened to it a few times before going on. And one of the things I have said many times is, I don't think I have personally ever had a completely original idea. Mm -hmm. And I usually say this in the context of, you know, parents will come up to me at a convention or they'll say something like, I just want my child to be able to express himself. Mm -hmm. And I will challenge that and say, writing isn't really about expressing yourself so much as it's about expressing ideas. And if you live long enough and get lucky, you might have an original idea. I'm not sure I ever have. I think everything I ever thought came from somewhere. And you gave such great examples in this chapter on stock. Talk a little bit about this idea because it's not a word that I think I had ever heard before in the context of the ideas that make up the richness of the Western intellectual tradition. I like that word stock because one thing I do repeatedly in the book is try to think of physical analogs or, or things that are more palpable to us before then making the shift to the intellectual or the cognitive analog. So I think we can acknowledge that it's good to have a lot of stuff in stock or in store if you, let's say, want to build something that you you can't build something from nothing. You assemble things from pre-existing parts. And then your configuration of those things might become a new thing, or it might be a novel configuration, even if the parts pre-existed you. So again, if you think about physical stock or things that you have in store, I think that helps then with the transition to thinking about cognitive stock or intellectual heritage, even the stock of words, word stock, that sense of a resource or an archive from which you can draw upon in order to configure something new. And again, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's inter interesting. If you look at the history of invention or you talk to inventors, they will often say, you know, I didn't make this, this new thing, all these parts kind of pre-existed, but it was my putting them together in this way that led to the steam engine or led to the laser or whatever the case might be, that it, it wasn't making something from nothing as in the quip from King Lear. It's, it's actually synthesizing something from pre-existing things. Yeah. And this is another case in which there's a, 
a wonderful word that kind of captures that that fundamental duality in the nature of stock, which is the word invent or the the Latin term inventio, which gives us both our English verb invent to make something new, but it also gives us our English word inventory, which is the inventory of all of our stock, the stuff that we have to hand already. And what's fascinating to me is that in the history of rhetoric, the, the traditional five stages in the history of rhetoric began with inventio, began with an inventory. The first thing that you do when you're trying to make an argument or a poem or a song or a letter is sit down and think about what's the inventory of everything that I know about this topic, and then gather that material and then arrange it for the the particular circumstance, whether it's a legal argument or a political discourse or whatever the case might be, you're not making something from nothing. You're sitting down and you're pausing to make an inventory of what you already know. And that includes words and concepts and history and really the full range of the liberal arts. And then you're bringing it to bear upon your your circumstance or your, your situation to make something that's fitting and appropriate for that particular moment. But but you can't do that without without having the stock. And it's an argument for wide reading and it's a, an argument for for liberal education, I would say, to be exposed to a lot of things so that you that you have them to hand when the occasion demands it. Yes. And I think for a lot of people, this idea of creative writing implies or they infer from this that somehow they have to create something from nothing, mm-hmm. you know, ex nihilo, like God. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that. And so you explain this in such an eloquent way. And I think it's a fundamentally freeing thing, especially for kids. You don't have to make up something that nobody ever thought of before. You just have to find something and and play with it mm-hmm. and the freedom that that engenders. So I was very excited when you talked about the origin of the meaning and the relationship between invention and inventory. No, I agree. I think it is actually liberating. I think there is something kind of terrifying about the blank page or the blank screen that that ends up feeling stultifying like I have nothing to say. I don't I don't know what to do. And again, it's a kind of it seems counterintuitive, but one of the ways to have something to say is to know what other people have said and then think about how how you can rearrange that and and apply that to your own life and to your own your own circumstances but it's it's a i think time tested and long standing technique of you know even the kind of pre-writing techniques that we often have with writing of or free writing of getting a lot of ideas on paper or literally just copying down what other people have said and then looking at it and fooling yourself into a kind of a messy draft that you, that then you begin to refine and 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 make your own. I have to jump in here. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> because the listeners are just thinking, oh, well, Dr. Newstock has taken Andrew Pudua's writing courses. No, no. <laughs> and it's not true. No, no. But I'm That's sure funny. you've seen the movie Finding Forrester. Right. Where he, he says, just start typing this. And then when you feel you can, take over. Mm-hmm. And I've used that as kind of an object lesson for the importance of being open to imitation and starting with with something that is just copying, just straight I mean, copying. literally copying. You're right. I mean, we yeah. have so, and we have so many examples of writers who say just that. You know, I quote a few of them, but there are there are scores of writers who say, you know, I just wanted to sit at the typewriter and type like Hemingway. So I just typed out Hemingway or Judd Apatow says, you know, I wanted to learn how to be funny and I would just transcribe Saturday Night Live skits. And this goes back to the Benjamin Franklin 
anecdote that you were bringing up earlier. He wanted to be a better writer and he'd been pulled out of school by his brother. He wasn't able to complete his education. So he sat down and looked at a good model of writing from Addison and Steele from the 18th century Great British Periodical Series. And he just copied them. And that that's exactly what Shakespeare was forced to do as well. Sit down with Cicero, copy Cicero, translate it from Latin into English, then translate that back into Latin, and then look at how well the copying had been produced. It again, it looks it looks old fashioned. It looks rudimentary. You you would think that it wouldn't it would lead to the most kind of slavish form of imitation, but it actually turns out to be strangely liberating. I had an experience many years ago. I was I heard someone talk about the benefits of copying scripture. Mm-hmm. And so as an experiment, I decided that I would try to copy just by hand on paper the book of John. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered was that I was noticing a whole lot of things. Absolutely. That I never noticed even having heard or read it many dozens, hundreds of times. There's this slowing down and this apprehending of detail that happens. And I don't know you get that any other way, or at least not as efficaciously as you do by copying something beautiful. That apprehending is a great verb because it is about the kind of grasping of it in a way. And it's also about, it's almost as if you're embodying the position of the writer. And I I like to tell students to do that when, for example, they're examining a sonnet by Shakespeare, one that they've already memorized, I say, sit down and and write it and pretend that you're writing it for the first time and ask yourself at the end of that first line, why did I say that? And what might I say next? And why does it it make sense for me to invoke this word at at this juncture? And that I think that's true of any great writing. It's, It's interesting you bring up scriptural transcription, you know, one of the the 613 mitzvahs of the of the Jewish tradition is to copy them by hand. And most people don't do that. But I think the premise is exactly what you're describing there with your experience with the book of John, where you begin to think your way into it. At first glance, it looks like a mechanical process, but it actually turns into almost like you're revivifying the text. And as you said, you're slowing yourself down or you're forcing yourself to have a different kind of relationship to it than just letting your eyes skim over what you thought was familiar. Oh, I love that word, revivifying the text, bringing to life again. You mentioned sonnets, and you talk about sonnets as a form in your chapter of constraint. And this was of particular interest to me because our whole system is based on models and checklists. So Mm -hmm. when we start teaching writing to children, we give them various models to follow for structure, for the arrangement side, and then checklists of specific word usages and grammatical constructions and literary devices, if you will, to use on the style side. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get our structure and style. And one of the things people worry about if they don't have any experience is, well, won't this stifle creativity? Mm -hmm. But in your chapter on constraint, and specifically you talked about the form of the sonnet, which is very specific, as actually engendering a level of creativity that is greater than you would ever expect by that constraint. Well, and that constraint idea is 
you know, my undergraduate degrees in recreation. We've talked about this before, but mm-hmm. fences on the playground were a big yeah. topic of conversation. <laughs> and turns out they're a good idea because kids feel more free to play within the fences. I love that. I mean, I think I think the beauty of constraint, again, to make the sports analog, if you, you know, part of the beauty of a baseball game, let's say, is that it's nine innings long. And ever since Abner Doubleday in the 19th century, it's been nine innings long. And if you suddenly... Mm-hmm. changed it to three innings long, it would just be a different game. And the the beauty or the elegance or the achievement, the grace of doing well in baseball is working within that constraint of nine innings. Or, you know, we even like this with the kind of competitive cooking shows where you're given seven arbitrary ingredients and it looks a little bit bizarre at first, but all of the teams end up coming up with something wonderful based on that set of constraints. And it's not that you gave them access to in an infinite grocery store, infinite stock of, of food. You said, here's the seven ingredients that you have. Now go see what you can do with it. And in some ways, the sonnet is a, is a very quick and apprehensible example of that larger dynamic of writing within constraint. It's just arbitrary. It's 14 lines long. It, does, it didn't have to be 14 lines long. Initially, sonnets weren't 14 lines long, but at some point, that constraint became a pattern and everyone's followed it since, or if they've not followed it, that's been a deliberate strategy to write a 13-line sonnet or a double sonnet of a 28-line sonnet or whatever form you're you're playing with. Even when you're pushing against the constraints, you are still working with them in a, in a productive way. And you have something to push off of, if you want to think of it that way, going back to your boundaries of the playground, that it's the, the boundedness is actually a a helpful and productive human human dynamic. And that leads into one of the last chapters of freedom. Mm. And again, you know, you said in a more elegant way than what I have tried to point out to people is that the liberal arts are the arts of free people, that we study grammar and logic and rhetoric and arithmetic and geometry and astronomy and music so that we will be able to preserve our intellectual and spiritual, if not also physical freedoms. And as we lose that intellectual freedom, we become vulnerable socially. We we become less able to contend with those things that threaten our well-being. I just, I, I would like you to comment a little bit on how your students at the college level, at the university level there, how do they change as a result of being with you? Because I I know you must have a very transformative experience on the students that come out of the public high schools and into a college, and then they, they would sit in your classroom and start reading Shakespeare. And just share a little bit about that because it must be an incredibly fulfilling work that you do. Oh, I, I certainly love my work and I feel like it's a blessing and I come from a long line of teachers. So in some ways it's in my bones. It's hard for me, you know, it's I, talking about assessment. I think it's hard for me to gauge what happens after three months in the class together. I, I often like to say that it probably would be more accurate to check in with students five or 10 years after the mm. class is concluded rather than the immediate evaluations that are submitted at the end of the semester, sometimes when they're frustrated with the teacher <laughs> for good reasons or, or in sometimes for bad reasons. You know, I think students are are in a really difficult 
situation these days. I think they're inundated with all kinds of competitions for their attention. They've gone through the pandemic. Many of them have felt socially isolated as a result of ways in which they've been educated at home or elsewhere. So I feel incredibly sympathetic to the incoming generations of students. And I guess I have a kind of a dual sense of what their arrival in my class entails these days. I think what I like to do is something that many of them have not done in their classes before. And that often is initially frustrating because I don't like to use a rubric. I don't like to follow what they would expect for kind of conventional templates. But I think that those that are willing to stick with it and and willing to kind of go through the quirky things that I'm doing really end up enjoying it and feeling enriched by it. And it's not like what they've had before in, in previous classes. And I, I would hope that every stage of education would be like that, that it would be not like what you've done before. It would be an outgrowth of what you've done, or it would be an elaboration of what you've done before, but it would it would have a new quality to it that's pushing you in new directions. So and and you you have students memorize mm-hmm. poetry. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. That's also old fashioned. Um yeah. but again something that I think is still effective and there are many reasons why why that's so effective. And absolutely something we advocate here at yeah, IW. Actually, <laughs> we have a program I wrote many years ago, still something we sell. It's called Linguistic Development Through Poetry Memorization. Mm-hmm. And it's for children, and it starts off with, you know, simple two, four-line poems and moves up. There's five levels. The fifth level is uh, excerpts from famous speeches. Mm -hmm. And I just feel as though you must be just a kindred spirit in this way of understanding that how when you you take – when you memorize something, it's more than just words. It's more than just mechanical my mother, who is a music teacher, used to always – she never said memorize. She'd always say, learn by heart, mm-hmm. learn by heart. And I can think of nothing better to take into one's heart than the distilled beauty of the past as we find in Shakespeare. Yeah, and, and in countless writers and countless creators, I think it's – in a wonderful way, I think it's a way to own that. It's a way to make it your own. It's a way to not feel like it is something that's outside of you or that's alien to you or that's oppressive to you, but it actually is part of your your heritage and and you deserve it and you have a birthright to it. So, you know, I end the book, that chapter on freedom that you were mentioning, I felt, I knew immediately when I was crafting the chapters that that's where I wanted to go. That was my telos. That was my end. Mm that the ultimate goal of an education like this is a high level of freedom. It's a form of human flourishing. And I also knew that I wanted to end with the amazing essay by James Baldwin that he composed in 1964 for the 400th anniversary of of Shakespeare's birth. And it was a magazine that had asked a lot of contemporary journalists and intellectuals to reflect on, on four centuries of Shakespeare. And most of them are forgettable the submissions that were made, but Baldwin's is just incredible. And and I recommend it to everyone. And if there's one thing that anyone gets out of the book, I hope they go and, and read that James Baldwin essay, which has this amazing title. The title is Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare. I love that title because it immediately captures your imagination. Here he's being asked to celebrate Shakespeare on his 400th anniversary of his birth. And Baldwin comes back with a title that challenges you to think, wait, why why did he hate Shakespeare? And yeah. And when was that? And when when did he stop 
hating Shakespeare. And why, why did he stop hating Shakespeare? So it's, it's an amazing, short, brilliant essay, but it captures that sense of Baldwin moving from feeling like, as he says, Shakespeare was an architect of my oppression to feeling like I own Shakespeare. He is, he's as much a part of my heritage as, as he is of anyone's on this planet. And he belongs to all of us just as, as all of cultural and intellectual history belongs to everyone. It's often hard to access or it's hard to achieve that connection or to make it your own or to learn it by heart. But once you do, it, it is a part of you. You've, you've ingested it in the best sense and you've incorporated it in the core of your being. Andrew, whet our appetite. You've got the book in front of well, you. Read the first couple lines. Uh, yeah, this is so good. Uh, you quoted this here. My quarrel, this is from the Baldwin essay, I believe. Mm -hmm. My quarrel with the English language has been that the language reflected none of my experience. But now I began to see the matter in quite another way. If the language was not my own, it might be the fault of the language, but it might also be my fault. Perhaps the language was not my own because I had never attempted to use it, had only learned to imitate it. And wow. uh, that, yeah, that just <laughs> struck me. So this has been so awesome and we could go on for hours, I'm sure. And maybe someday we will meet in person. I hope so. But I do have one question I would like your input on because people ask me this. And in general, I will say, I believe that children should read the books before they see the movie. The book is bigger than the movie. The movie is always a summary. It's a chopped down version. So a lot of parents be like, okay, if you read the book, then you can see the movie. I have a 10-year-old grandson right now who's finally finished The Fellowship of the Ring, just sweat blood reading this thing <laughs> for months. And we're going to watch the movie this Sunday, Aww. a big party at the big screen at our house. But with Shakespeare... I actually suggest the opposite. I suggest that you see the play or see a film version of the play before reading it. Would you agree that that's good advice to give to parents I talk to? I think that's good advice. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of agnostic about which way you approach, if it's text first and then performance or the other, other way around. I think in, in the best circumstances, those are mutually reinforcing. I read a play and then I see it performed, then I have a better way to think about the play. Or I go to a performance and then I'm excited and I want to go and read it more slowly and in my own head. I don't think there's a hard and fast line about a rule about that. I think it, especially for children, it's often easier to access through a live performance first before they struggle with the words. But I'm, I don't have a, I, I'm not strict about that in, in any way. I think, I think they're both mutually reinforcing the, the page and the stage. Okay, good. And then one last is a horrible question. Not even fair. You can refuse to answer if you want to. <laughs> but I meet people, honestly, I meet young moms, you know, mid-30s, and they have no exposure. They have zero experience with Shakespeare. Somehow they finished high school or college and just never read a play, never saw a play. So I have been asked, what is the best Shakespeare play to start with, like, oh, what I can't is wait your to favorite? hear. Please I, I, answer oh, that's this. Tough. <laughs> I know it's tough. Uh, that those are two different questions. You asked two different questions there. You said, "What's your favorite?" and then, "What's the best to start with?" Those are those are very different questions. Okay, well, I, you my favorite. Give me two answers. Yeah, sure. I'll give you at least two answers here. My favorite is "The Winter's Tale," a, a wonderful late play that is a kind of marvelous blend of everything he did across his career. It feels like a horrible tragedy for the first 
maybe three acts, three, four acts, and then it suddenly pivots and it feels like a wonderful restorative comedy. And somehow it all comes together in the end, though there it is shadowed by genuine loss. So I love that play. It's really hard to perform, I think. But when I've seen it performed well, I've been really blown away. I don't know, in terms of first play for someone, I think, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream is very accessible mm. for all kinds of audiences. I think the the histories are often initially difficult to read, though I think once you kind of get past a certain stage, they're they're just as powerful and compelling as anything else. It's the tragedies that tend to be taught in American high schools, Julius Caesar and Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. In some ways, that's kind of a curse in the larger sense. Shakespeare is cursed by being or sorry, cursed is the wrong word. He's, <laughs> it's not to his benefit to be the only non-prose pre-20th century writer in a lot of high school curricula. Mm. That's an enormous moat that's around his work, and it's a disservice to hundreds of intervening writers, writers that came before him and writers that came after him, when a lot of the curricula in our high schools has collapsed into contemporary prose and that's a disservice to the wonderful long history of writing. So it makes Shakespeare especially intimidating because you're you're trying to read something from 400 years ago. You might not have experience with reading poetry or reading drama. So that that's another reason why seeing a performance can draw you in before you you start to wrestle with the words on the page. My son, when he was in college, was in the play The Taming of the Shrew. Wow. And that was just so, so much fun. I like mm -hmm. Shakespeare's well, comedies, and my of favorite course. is Twelfth Night because oh, right. I mm -hmm. was in Twelfth Night. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to throw you own it. It's, you have it by heart. Well, it was many, many years ago, but, you know, some are born to greatness, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. I remember <laughs> that very well. Um, mm -hmm. I have an idea for you. I think you should start doing what Jordan Peterson started doing many, many years ago record your classes and post them all on YouTube mm. because I'm not going to get to Memphis anytime soon and for any significant length of time. But if I could somehow be a virtual student of you, that would be kind of a dream come true. So consider whether you might put more content out for the people who, who love the way you think, who love the way Shakespeare thinks and who want to become better at that. Well, it's, it's just a real pleasure to speak with both of you, Andrew and Julie. So thank you for the time today. It's been a pleasure. And listener, let me just direct you to scottnewstock.com. And that's, that's without a C, N-E-W-S-T-O-K. Right. And that's okay. where you can find his book and learn more about him. And perhaps maybe, Andrew, one of your little pithy statements about how much you love this book will show up as, as oh, one no, of his reviews. That would be a delight. I would love that. Well, and I'm going to carry this around to every convention yes. I go to next year and hold it up and tell everyone to buy it. <laughs> they so. need to buy it. <laughs> just, to, just stay on the road. Don't be <laughs> Well, Andrew, I can certainly see why you have encouraged us to have him on the podcast. And again, Dr. Newstock, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, 
or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing, would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.